Please be seated. We are finishing our sermon series in a collection of psalms, the Psalms of Ascent. So if you will turn to Psalm 134. That's page 611 in my Bible. So there you go. Now, some of you have asked how the eldership retreat went, um, and honestly, it was wonderful. Um, On Friday night, we were outside, we had a bonfire, and we were sharing about things going on in our lives, and then I don't remember who, someone screamed out, Orca! And sure enough, there were, we counted, I think, six Orcas swimming out in the ocean, right? Now, the elders are really convinced that it's a sign, okay, that this year is going to be a great year. It's going to be a killer year, okay? (laughs) Now, we were sitting around the fire, and we were talking in some ways about our our sort of pilgrimages this past year, checking in uh, about our lives, about how we're doing, keeping each other accountable, because in the Bible... A word to describe a Christian is the pilgrim, right? We are wanderers. We're sojourners. We're sort of spiritual travelers. To sort of steal from John Bunyan, we are spiritual travelers on a path to the celestial city. And and so pilgrims, I think, aren't just sort of a designation just for Christians. When you really think about it, everyone's a pilgrim. Everyone has a spiritual pilgrimage. Actually, that's one of the, my favorite ways to have a sort of gospel conversation, or at least a spiritual conversation with someone, which is just to ask them, hey, what's your spiritual pilgrimage? I'm always uh, shocked and and warmed by people's response. Everyone's got it. Christian, non-Christian, everyone's got a story. Everyone's got a spiritual story. Well, these past few months, we've been sort of on a pilgrimage of our own. We've been studying this collection of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. And if you remember way back a few months ago, we started in Kadar, Psalm 120. And now in Psalm 134, we're leaving Jerusalem. We're we're going back home. Our text is a sort of goodbye you're going to see when I read it that the last verse is a, a, benedic- a benediction. It's a, it's a farewell address. It's a goodbye to Jerusalem and the, the, the wonderful experience these pilgrims had as they descended on Israel to worship at various times, at various feasts that they were called by God to remember all of God's faithfulness in the past. And as the pilgrim sort of turns to go home, I think we pause to remember that it's, it's hard to go home. Like seven or eight years ago, um, uh, actually it was five years ago, my uh, wife's family sent a bunch of us to Hawaii. I mean, it was amazing, guys. Right? If you haven't been to Hawaii, right. I mean, I, I literally swam with turtles. That's a thing. Okay? I didn't have to try very hard. Like it was warm. Just smells good. Golf. It's wonderful. And I remember we were there for like a week. You know, you, you get to day five and you're like, eh, maybe I'll just skip the plane, right? Maybe I'll just miss the flight home. When you're in those sort of wonderful vacations, 
you don't want to go home, do you? Well, in the Old Testament, as pilgrims went to Jerusalem to gather, it was a bit like that, right? They only went to Jerusalem a few times a year, and it was kind of a feeling of loss, of regret. Now I have to go back. It was so enjoyable, so wonderful to, to be with the sort of gathering of the, 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 the church, the Old Testament church. But all good things come to an end, don't they? And so our pilgrim turns, says goodbye to Jerusalem in, in, in various ways. The, the Jerusalem that he's longed to see, and he leaves. And, and as we come to a close of this collection of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent, there's one more lesson for us to learn. One more lesson the pilgrim wants to teach us. And it's a lesson all to do with blessing. So the big idea, it'll be on the screen behind me, is this. As you bless God, God outblesses you. That's what we're going to think through today in those two parts. So turn with me to Psalm 134. I'm going to read it. And then we're going to get into this text. A song of ascents. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Not a very long psalm. I'm guessing it'd take you five minutes to memorize this psalm. But there is theological gold in this psalm. Now, sometimes in order to sort of understand kind of the big idea or the main thesis of a text, sometimes it comes to the surface just based on repeated words. So there in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3, we have a repeated word. It's the word bless. But but, but notice in verse 1 and 2, there's a sort of call to bless the Lord, right? And then if you look down at verse 3, it's not, no longer a call to bless the Lord. It's God's calling to bless in return. So, so verse 1 and 2 is a sort of call, um, a call to worship, a call to gather and worship the Lord, bless the Lord. And then in verse 3, there's blessing that comes back. Verse 1 and 2 is a Call to worship, verse 3, is a benediction. I mean, if you, if you grabbed your bulletin, and if you looked at the order of service, you'd see that there's a call to worship at the beginning and a benediction at the end. So, so this is a sort of top and tail. It's a, it's a uh, beginning and end of a Old Testament liturgy, an Old Testament worship service. And so we have a call to worship, and then in verse 3, we have a benediction. And so starting in verse 1, if you go there, our pilgrim, he calls out, right? He comes, he's come, right? It's the idea of gathering. It's the idea of, of, of all co- gathering together, those that have been scattered to come together. It's an invitation, isn't it? And then when the, when the pilgrim says, okay, come on, let's come, let's gather, we have a command, right? We have an imperative. Come, let us Bless the Lord. Now, before we get into what this blessing is, like how it is that we can bless the Lord, just, just, just look at who he's talking to. 
Look, look at the pilgrim. He's addressing someone or, or a group of people. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. Now, who are the servants of the Lord? Well, well the servants of the Lord are the, the Levites, right? They're, they're the priests. And so here's this pilgrim addressing the priests. But then if you keep reading, you realize that it, it's actually narrowing. It's not just the, the priests in general, not those who are servants in the house of God. But if you keep reading, it says, those who stand by night in the house of the Lord. So, so, so this pilgrim calls out to the priests, but not all the priests, particularly the priests who are standing at the house of the Lord at night. Now, I think a little biblical context from the Old Testament is going to help us. So you go back to Deuteronomy. You don't, you don't have to. You can just listen to me. But if you want to, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8, we're told a little bit about the priest's job description. And so you read this, that at the time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi, the priests, to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to stand, right? There's our Psalm 134 language. And to stand before the Lord and to serve him and to bless his name. Again, our language from Psalm 134. The the priests were called... Right? They're called to gather. They're, they're called to, to hold the tabernacle and the, and the ark, to carry them, to stand before the Lord, and to bless the Lord. That was one of their job descriptions. And then just one, one more Old Testament text. And there's, there's many. But in First Chronicles chapter 9, this is talking about the Levitical singers. We read this. Now, there are singers, heads of father's household of the Levites who lived in the chambers of the temple free of other service. Now, they were free of other service because they had a very particular service in the temple, which was they engaged in their work day and night by singing. So day and night, there was a worship service, a musical service in the temple. So think of it this way. The, the, the temple didn't have closing hours. You know, priests had a morning shift, a swing shift, and a night shift. And so from morning to night, from dawn to dusk, there were people in the house of the Lord, in the temple, which is another word for Mount Zion, and they're working, right? They're conducting services. They're leading music. They are sacrificing to the Lord, all there on Mount Zion, there in the temple. And so here's this pilgrim who speaks to the night priests. And my guess is at this point, right? Like, like every night service, right? The numbers have probably dwindled, right? So, so he's there for this festival. It's night and he calls out to the priests who are serving at the temple and he says... Keep going. Right? Keep standing. Keep worshiping. Keep singing. There's, a, there's an encouraging to the priests from this pilgrim. Now, though this is going out to priests in general and particularly night priests, if you kind of 
go to the New Testament, that there are lots of words or descriptions for what a Christian is in, in, in sort of a Christian's identity. And one of those words, frankly, is the word priest. So you go to First Peter 2, 9, and, and the, the church, those Christians, those in Christ are called a royal priesthood, right? That because of Jesus Christ, because he is the ultimate priest, he has now made a way for men and women who put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ to have access to God and be priestly. They, they, they have access to God. They can worship God. And so, by way of application, it's not just that this pilgrim calls out to, to, to just priests, and I'm pretty sure none of us are priests in that formal sense. But, but by way of application, this is all of us. And so here's this call, an encouraging call, to continue worshiping. I think in many ways, we need wisdom to know as we're having conversation, as we're meeting with people, there's wisdom to know when to critique, to give maybe helpful, godly criticism and feedback. And other times, when to just encourage. And and my guess is, especially in this season, we need a lot of encouragement these days, don't we? There's just a lot of things that are discouraging disappointments that just are just piling on. And so I think this pilgrim knows that these, these, these priests, they need some encouragement to keep on going. And I don't know about you, but, but one of the uh, big ways in which God encourages me, right? Not, not the only way, but one of the ways is actually from fellow pilgrims. Like, I'll, 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 no one will know, but I'll have a discouraging or hard week. And then a random text comes in from someone in the church saying, Hey, pastor, thanks for pointing me to Jesus. And my guess is they don't think anything of it. They spent little time thinking about it, right? It was just something that popped into their mind. And yet it meant the world, right? So often, pilgrims encourage pilgrims. I think that's what we have here, right? Like, I I personally have no idea what was going on in the souls of these evening priests, but I don't have to, and neither do you. We we all have discouraging days. We all have disappointments, right? you're, You're parenting, and you keep putting Jesus before people, before your kids, and they just keep not being interested in Jesus, Or you just keep praying the same thing over and over and over again, and it just seems as though God is not answering your prayers. Or you lead a ministry that was once vibrant, and all of a sudden you start leading it, and it looks like you killed it. And you're like, what? Or you work hours and hours on that small group or Bible study, and like no one shows up, and you just think, is it worth it? That's what's going on, right? These priests are like, I mean, I'm singing, I'm working, I'm standing, I'm sacrificing constantly. Does it matter? And so here comes this pilgrim, and he says, oh, it matters. And I see you, and I want to encourage you. Keep on going. It's a call to bless the Lord. We're all called, right? 
that this is a binding command. We're all called to stand and worship God by blessing him. And we're going to get into what that means in a second. But we also know that all of us have spiritually wobbly knees from time to time, right? All of us have an inner quitter. Comes out from time to time based on crushing disappointments. So here we have this pilgrim who's crying out to the priest, keep on going. It's, he's like a cheerleader, right? We, we need those people, right? Be that for someone. Go to verse two. In verse two, we then have this call. Once again, it's a repeated call to bless the Lord, but, but, but it says, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. Um, so, so it's not just that we're called to bless the Lord. That, that, that's, that's part of this. But, but, but the whole idea of blessing the Lord, it, when you think about it, like, okay, meet, bless, bless the Lord. It's kind of uncomfortable, right? Like, we, we get the idea of God blessing us. That makes sense to us. But how do we bless the Lord? Like, God is infinite, powerful, majestic. How in the world do we, creatures, sinners, how do, How do we bless the Lord? Well, we got to make sense of this because it is a very much a binding command. And and if you didn't know, actually, this command, this calling, this exhortation to bless the Lord, it is one of the most prevalent commands in the Old Testament, rivaling, I think, uh, only fear not. So, So what is this bless the Lord business? Like, what is it? How, how do we sort of define it? Well, I, I think many times scripture should interpret scripture. And, and so go to Psalm 145, like just a few Psalms away. And if we look at verse one and three, we read this. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. There's the language of blessing. Blessing God. Verse 2, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. In many ways, the idea of blessing God and praising God, they're interchangeable. I mean, there might be some subtle differences, but, but basically here we even have, they're just set side by side. They're like dancing partners. Blessing the Lord is praising the Lord. So, so if we needed to define what does it mean to bless the Lord, well, it's, it's simply to speak well of God. Blessing the Lord is to sing well of God. Blessing the Lord is to pray well of God. It's, it's thinking right thoughts about God. It's declaring his, his, his grandeur, his ma- majestic nature, his goodness and love and glory. That's that's what it means to bless the Lord. It's just a, a declaring in, in word. And we'll see in a moment also with our bodies. It's a declaration of who God is in his true biblical essence. That's what it means to bless the Lord. And if you go, and I mentioned 1 Peter 2.9, right? Because that's a description of our identity as priests. If you look even there, and this is one of my favorite texts, so it's hard not to just have it always be popping up into my mind. 
But, but it says you are a royal priesthood, a chosen people, all these wonderful, amazing identity. And then it says, okay, but now I, your purpose to do something out of that identity, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, now you have received mercy. That's what it means. Like it, it, 1 Peter 2.9 doesn't say bless the Lord, but it doesn't have to, right? It's that same idea. Blessing the Lord is praising, declaring who God is in all his fullness and wonder and glory and goodness. That's what it means. Well, but, but it's not just with words. Did you notice verse 2? It also has to do with our hands, right? Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. If you just did a word search on lifting up your hands in the Bible, mostly it's connected to prayer. And so in, uh, in the Bible, there are sort of two postures of worship in general and prayer particularly. So the first is laying prostrate, right? Falling on your face. I'm not going to do it because I don't know if I'll get up, right? So, right, falling down on your knees and falling down like this. That's, that's one biblical kind of posture of prayer and worship. But one we, don't oft, we often forget is that the second posture, biblical posture, is actually raising your hands. That's the second posture of prayer. And if you look at early Christian paintings and catacombs, one of the most often kind of painted description of the Christian are, are people with their hands held up. And in both, you know, falling on your face or raising your hands, just think about it. Think, think about what they just kind of visually depict. Surrender, right? It's surrender. Um, in our text, it, it has to do with hand raising. But when you really think about it, hand raising, it, it doesn't just symbolize surrender. It's a natural response to God as we surrender our hearts to him. So um, this summer, the Olympics are coming. And my wife and me, we love me some Olympics, all right? This is like, like I want to take my own sabbatical just so I can watch the Olympics. Love it. Like sports that no one should ever care about, I care about, okay? I don't know why I care about it, but I just get excited for the Olympics, and so what you're doing, at least my wife and I, I'm guessing you too, is you're watching the Olympics, these sports you have no idea, and you're just sitting on, you know, the edge of your seat as, you know, someone is about to break a world record, right? Swimming, running, you know, Simone Biles is doing like 13,000 flips in the air, right? And you're just like, that, that defies physics, whatever, right? And you're sitting on the edge of your seat, and then someone breaks a world record. And what do you do? You just throw up your hands, right? It's involuntary, right? You, you've all been in a sporting game or you're with your favorite team or something has happened and you're just so excited. There's just a game winner and you just go. And everyone does it. And no one's judging each other. No one's like, why did you do that? And it's like, I didn't think to do this. It just happens. What, what's going on? Well, well, what's happening is it's like, Throwing up your hands is a reflex of something internally going on inside of us. So joy and happiness is welling up and it just pushes your arms up. I don't, 
I don't know why, okay? You can ask God, but it just happens. And so raising your hands is an outward expression of some inner experience or feeling. And so what our text is saying is, there will be times in which you will get a glimpse of God's beauty and glory and love and goodness and gentleness, and it'll be so overwhelming in your soul that you will not be able to not keep your hands from raising. Now, I'm not suggesting that raising your hands in worship, like in music, that, that, that everyone has to do it. That's not what this is saying, okay? And it's not even saying that if you raise your hand, you're like super spiritual and you're mature, right? Right? It's like you've got these people who are like a little mature. You've got these people a little more mature. Then you've got these people super mature. And that's not what's going on here, right? No. But, 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 but the point of this is, as we come, as we meditate on God, on his glory and goodness, there's going to be times you just can't help and tears are just going to form in your, in your eyes. There's going to be times in which you're just going to fall on your knees. There's going to be times in which your just hands are going to shoot up, just like at a sporting arena. You're just going to go, God is amazing. And I don't know. I don't care who knows it. I've, I've spoken of this before, but... In many ways, these first two verses, you can summarize it um, in an old confession, but this is the chief end of all of our lives, right? The chief end, the purpose, let me, let me just break it down. It, it's not like the game of life, that, that old board game. That's not our purpose, right? To just, you know, with the luck of a, a dice to just, you know, acquire as much as you can get, right? That's That's... That's not the purpose. That's not the goal. The Westminster Catechism, basically the first question, asks the question, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief purpose? What's the point of all of humanity? And it's to glorify God. It's to bless God. It is to praise God. That is the chief end to man, to praise, to glorify God, to bless God, and enjoy him forever. That's the call that comes out to us. That's the pilgrim's call to us. To come, to gather, and to just feast on God. To delight in God. To think such lofty thoughts about God in who he is, what he's done for you, what he's done in and through this world, and to say, I can't take it any longer. I just want to worship. And I think it comes to us, particularly those who are feeling like, I don't know if I can do it much longer or I'm discouraged, or I don't want to keep worshiping God. I think this is the most important thing that all of us need right now. More important than anything that the world would offer, the most important thing we need right now is to be so satisfied in God, to be so enamored with him, to be so wrapped up in Jesus Christ and his redemptive accomplishments that we just well up in worship and praise and joy, regardless of what happens. So that's the, that's the call in verse 1 and 2. It's a, it's a call to come. 
But, but there's another kind of call of blessing. And that's in verse 3. Um, ha- have you ever um, bought a present for someone you've like thought about it? Like you were like, okay, I want to really think about this gift. You, you made financial sacrifices and you're really excited and you gave someone a gift. And then they gave you a gift in return and they just dominated you on their gift, right? It's really annoying, right? They just out-gifted you. Well, here, I think, verse 3, we learn, God out-gifts us. God out-blesses us. Just, just emotionally be at peace with this, okay? God will always out-bless you, okay? Just make peace with it now. Uh, the, the early Scottish reformer Samuel Rutherford once said this, I never run an errand to the throne of grace when I do not fetch back a blessing for myself. Isn't that so true? Ver, ver, verse 3, the, the, the priests now announce a benediction back to the pilgrim, right? It's like an antiphonal, right? They're having like this conversation. We read, may the Lord bless you from Zion. He who made heaven and earth. Now, you, you might be thinking, actually, this is pretty similar to one of the most famous benediction, right? The, the Aaronic blessing in number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you priest, uh, peace, right? That's, that, right? That's the priest, not the peace. Well, benedictions are pretty similar like that. It, it's a call for blessing on a people. But a benediction, and we don't like use that term often, but a benediction is not a prayer, right? It's not a closing prayer. When, when we have our benediction, when I have our, our, we do the same benediction every Sunday. When, when I pronounce that benediction, I'm not praying. I'm declaring. That's what a benediction is. It's a pronouncement. It's a pronouncement and it's a declaration of truth. And here we learn that the command God gives about blessing, that, that actually it's not just that we bless the Lord, but that the Lord blesses us from Zion. Now we've learned this from over and over again in the Psalms, that Zion's the, the heartbeat of Old Testament worship. Right? It's where the God's people gathered to worship. The temple was there. That's where the priests were. The sacrifices were there. And so a few times a year, God called his people to take trips, right? You know, you got people in all these different tribes, right? Taking this pilgrimage to Jerusalem a few times a year. And so they they came to celebrate the Passover, right? Which was a celebration of remembering God's deliverance and redemption when he brought them out of Egypt. They would come and celebrate the uh, festival of weeks, which is a celebration of remembering when God constituted a people from himself and gave them the Ten Commandments, right? God speaks to his people. So they celebrated that all together. They would come together for the uh, uh, festival of tabernacles, which looked forward to God's faithfulness in the wilderness before they got to the promised land. So, so, so you have all these feasts, and they're all a reminder of God's past blessings, That's the purpose of them. Let's remember God's faithfulness in the past. That God redeems. That God speaks. That God provides. That God sustains. God blesses. 
And this blessing always flows from Mount Zion. It always does. It always will. God's people would remember all of these past festivals. But, but remember that the, the heart of all of those festivals and feasts was one day out of the year when God's people would descend on Jerusalem on the Day of Atonement. Because it wasn't just that we needed to gather to remember God's faithfulness in the past. They also needed to gather to remember that God would forgive them of their sins. And so they came together. They made a bull. The priest would sacrifice the bull. He would take blood from that bull, take it into a bull, go into the Holy of Holy, God's very presence, manifest presence, and he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat, thereby declaring that God has forgiven his people. But, but remember that that Old Testament, the, the Day of Atonement, that feast, always provisional, always pointing forward. The book of Hebrews tells us where that sacrificial system finds its fulfillment. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once and for all the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes and a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. That is the ultimate and greatest blessing that that flows from Mount Zion that we can have priestly access to God himself because of the great and greatest high priest, Jesus Christ, who who didn't sacrifice a goat, but sacrificed himself for the sins of the world. That is the greatest blessing that flows from Mount Zion. And let me just say, you can't earn this. You can't. I mean, just, just, just look grammatically at it. This is not your blessing. This is the Lord's blessing. He owns it. He has ownership rights over this blessing. And it's a blessing all about grace. So if you want mercy of Christ, it flows from Zion's hill when Christ died. If you need grace, wisdom, hope, approval, cleanliness, covering your shame, all of those things, it all flows from this one center blessing when we received the blessing and Jesus received the curse. I mean, we, we bless God, but it's small, isn't it? Right? It's small. It's, it, it's like a, a child, right, who wants to bless their, their grandparent. So they draw, and it's not a good drawing, right? You got, it's, it's not even realistic. You got, you know, arms going on of heads and stuff. And, but what does the grandparent do? The grandparent doesn't go, it's terrible. Throw in the garbage. No, no, no. The grandparent loves it. It honors him. Like, 
that's us, you guys. That's our feeble attempts at blessing God. We've got arms. We, we paint pictures. We, we, we have these thoughts. We, we worship in a way that is like that child. And yet God doesn't say, that's stupid. That's ugly. God accepts it. Why? It's all because God accepted the sacrifice of the son. And then let me just point out this last phrase. We have this, he who made heaven and earth. Why does, why does the author tag that on to the benediction? Well, I think it's because all good things must come to an end. Every festival has to come to an end. And so our pilgrim, this is the benediction. He's going back home. And just think of all that he experienced, right? He experienced the temple, festival, people. It was amazing. And now he's going home thinking, is God going to be with me? Am I leaving God behind in Zion? I mean, we, we know this feeling, right? We, we come to church and we think lofty thoughts. We sing lofty thoughts, we, right? We, we celebrate and worship and we're on a, on a, on a oh, you know, Lord willing, a sort of religious frenzy. Like, this is amazing. God is good. Jesus forgives me. We have all of these things that we're delighting in the truths of the gospel. And then Monday comes or Tuesday comes or maybe just encouragement to me. Maybe Thursday comes and you're like, I don't even remember what Stephen was teaching on, right? (laughs) Let's just say it's Thursday, not Monday. (laughs) But that day comes, right? We gather and then we scatter. And all of us are like, is God just on church on Sunday? Is, 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 that the, is that my theology? And the pilgrim goes, no, no, no. God is the God of Zion, but God is the God of the heavens and earth. And there is no circumstance. There is no situation. There is no place. You can't play hide and go seek with God. He is everywhere. He is the maker of heaven and earth. So come. That's how this ends. It's an exciting call to worship, to bless the Lord. And it's a call reminding us of the greatest blessing that anyone could experience, which is to have their sins forgiven, to be clean. And it all comes through the greatest high priest, not the priests here, but a high priest who stood and died. And then when he ascended, he finally sat down because it was finished. No more need for sacrifice. Christ did it all. My prayer for you this week is that as you fill your life, as you fill fill your thoughts, as you fill your week, that you would have such a grand vision of God that it would well up and maybe awkwardly even Maybe your hands would even shoot up. But if not, that you'd be so satisfied with God. And I just want to let remind you, when you are satisfied in God, it glorifies him. It blesses him. May that be our reality this week and the weeks to come. Let's pray. Lord, we... um, we know that, that we have a heart to worship you, to praise you, to bless you, to glorify you. And yet we, we know that all attempts 
are small. And yet, Lord, we are just so grateful that you delight in that and that you delight in us. We are grateful for your son, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and its application to our lives. And we pray, Lord, that we would be people who fill our lives, that, that we would be people that are God-centered. That whatever is swirling around in our lives, whatever we're experiencing, that the center and heart of our soul is your glory and goodness and love. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.